Church. It's, it's a great blessing and honor to be back here. And uh, as you may know, I've been preaching sporadically through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And today, we are on the last church, the lukewarm church of Laodicea. Uh, so before I begin, I'm just going to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to again uh, preach your word, to preach uh, on this church of Laodicea. And Lord, I pray that uh, my words would be more than simply facts and data, but Lord, that they would show, Lord, your heart for your church and challenge us, Lord, as believers in Christ those who claim to serve Christ, those wondering about Christ, what it means to truly be a church member and what it means to truly be a church that pleases you as we see this example of a church that is completely off base. Help me, Lord, as I preach this truth. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I said, I've been uh, preaching through the seven churches in the book of Revelation. I began a little over a year ago. Uh, these churches were real churches that existed during the time that the Apostle John was banished on the Isle of Patmos around 95 AD. In the four Gospels we read of Jesus's humiliating coming as a man with an ultimate purpose to die for his chosen people. And Mark 10.45 makes this point clearly. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Can everyone hear me? Unlike the Gospels, the purpose of the book of Revelation is to reveal the glory of the risen Christ. The Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle John declares that Christ is indeed coming again, and his return will be unmistakable, unmistakable. In Revelation chapter 1, Revelation 1, 7, 8, we read, that's 1, 7, 8 of Revelation, Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over Him. So it is to be, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. If we, have believe, if we as believers lose sight of this truth, if we miss the point of who we are because of Christ, that Christ saved sinners, He came as a man to die for us, and that He is coming again, if we forget this fact, uh, we miss why we're here. We are called to bring Him glory. Uh, we're called to speak of the King of the universe, this servant the king who came as a servant to serve and who died and gives life to a dying world. He came to save sinners. We must remember this truth. And his prescribed method to accomplish this task, proclaiming the truth of the gospel, is through the local church. The entire outline of the book of Revelation is laid out in chapter 1, verse 19, where it says, 
Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. The things which you have seen refers to the vision John saw of the glorified Savior in chapter 1. The things which are denotes the letters to the churches, chapters 2 and 3, which I've been preaching on. And the things which will take place after these things refer to the revelation of future events, chapters 4 to 22. In chapters 2 and 3, which we have been studying, Christ reveals his love and concern for his church. As we have seen in the letters to the first six churches, Jesus cares deeply for them, and he knows them completely. Beginning with the church in Ephesus, in chapter 2, verse 1, he commends them for remaining orthodox to doctrine and faithfully holding to the word of God. They believed, taught, and defended the right message, but they had grown cold and indifferent to that same message. And for that reason, he condemns them for leaving their first love. This was a church that understood doctrine, but forgot the purpose of pure doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.5 states, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. The church in, in Ephesus was zealous regarding correct teaching, but cold in regard to living it out. Yet the Bible makes it clear, without pure doctrine, biblical love is not possible. How can you accomplish what you do not understand? Though they are rebuked, they are also given many uh, praises for standing for truth and knowing truth. The second church, the church of Smyrna, the suffering church, Jesus offers nothing but praise. They have endured intense persecution. We're even told that more awaits them. He calls on them to consider the brevity of their trials in comparison to the eternal reward. In his third letter to the church in Pergamum, which was, in, which was an important religious center for several pagan cults, and it was even referred to as Satan's throne, but unlike Smyrna, its members had not remained faithful in the face of opposition. Instead, they had become worldly, corrupting their faith with the paganism that surrounded them. And this is a common theme throughout the letters to the churches. The downfall of many of them was succumbing to the influence of the culture they lived in. And that's true for us today. The church in Pergamum did not separate from the world, but rather they catered to it. They did not conform, they did not confront it, rather they accommodated it. The Lord's message to that church is clear. Repent. His fourth letter to the church in Thyatira begins positive with Christ commending the church for its love, faith, service, and perseverance. But then Jesus condemns this church because they tolerated the sin of a wicked, a wicked woman in its midst. She was seducing other believers into immorality and encouraging pagan practices. Jesus promises judgment for this woman because she refused to repent. Also, the church in Thyatira would share in this same judgment if they continued to tolerate her. This letter reminds us that God demands purity in his church. His fifth letter speaks bluntly in regard to the issues that were in the church in Sardis. I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. The problem for this church was that it was, as I said, dead. 
It revealed no sign of spiritual life. They produced no fruit. Nothing was happening there. Yet while there were a few in the church who still evidenced some spiritual life, they were all on the verge of spiritual death. Christ's words are meant to shake up Sardis from its spiritual lethargy. He orders it, he orders it to wake up. Then the sixth church, Philadelphia, receives no rebuke. Like the church in Smyrna, the Lord describes it as a faithful church, saying that the members kept my word and have not denied my name. The letter indicates that the church was small, but it didn't let the size of the congregation dictate its usefulness. In fact, the Philadelphian saints are commended for their faithfulness with the opportunities they have been granted. The calling for each church is simple. Be faithful. MacArthur and Mayhew give a good definition of the church. The church is primarily designated by the Greek word ekklesia, a term meaning those who are called out. Used in a specific New Testament sense, the church of God refers to the community of those who have been called out by God from their slavery to sin through faith in Jesus Christ. They are those whom he predestined in eternity past, called out, justified in this present life, and promised to glorify in the future. Consequently, the church is not the physical building where Christians meet, nor is it a religious institution, an ethical ins organization, or a socio-political association. Rather, the church is the assembly of the redeemed, those who have been called by God the Father to salvation as a gift to his Son. It is the corporate gathering of those who have been transformed, have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light, so that they are citizens of heaven and not of this world. Truly, the church is essential for the Christian. Throughout the Bible, Jesus makes it apparent repeatedly that he is deeply concerned for his church. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, he states, He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Romans 12, 4 and 5 states, He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Jesus is the head of his church, and he will protect and discipline it as he sees proper. His letter to the seven churches reveal this. He offers praise, encouragement to the faithful, and exhorts his church where it is failing or falling short. But he also gives strong rebuke when sin exists and needs to be dealt with. Jesus knows his church and provides the counsel needed to be faithful and praiseworthy. This letter to the church in Laodicea is by far the most condemning letter from the Lord. Jesus calls it the lukewarm church. One Bible commentator refers to it as the church of vomit and vanity. This is indeed the worst of all the seven. For even in the letter to the church in Sardis, which also received no commendation from the Lord, there is mention of a faithful remnant within. In Revelation 3, 4, uh, to the church of Sardis, it states, 
But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. But to this church, no such encouraging words exist. Yet to even such an indifferent church, the Lord offers counsel and hope. So you might think that such an unfaithful church, such an extreme example of hypocrisy, does not apply to you. It's easy to pat ourselves on the back and say, I or we as a church do not resemble those people. But there is much for us to glean from this letter. All scripture is profitable. We too can be blind regarding where we stand before God. This is a sobering letter to all believers. It is a reminder to take accurate stock of your faith, to humbly assess sin in your life, and to weed out any superficiality that exists within. Turn with me now in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3, and I'll be reading verses 14 to 22. That's 314 to 22. Message to Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of, cre- of the creation of God, says this, I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent." Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. Jesus reveals his knowledge and love for this lukewarm church and by default for the lukewarm church attender by presenting four necessary steps needed for transformation. They need to, you need to, I need to respect, recognize, respond, and receive. A first point of my outline, verse 314, respect the Christ title. Respect who Christ says he is. My second point, verses 3, 15 to 17, recognize your true condition. Thirdly, 18 to 20, respond to Christ's command. And finally, my fourth point, fourth point receive his counsel, verses 21 and 22. Like most of the other six churches, Laodicea started during Paul's ministry in Ephesus, but he did not personally establish it. It's believed by most commentators that Paul's co-worker, Epaphras, founded the church. This was an extremely wealthy city, 
with the arrival of the Pax Romana, peace under Rome's rule, Laodicea prospered. It was strategically located at the junction of two important roads. That location made it an important commercial city. So wealthy did Laodicea become that it paid for its own reconstruction after the devastating earthquake of 60 AD. They even rejected the help offered from Rome. This city was famous for soft black wool, the soft black wool it produced, and it was also an important center of ancient medicine. Laodicea had an important medical school which, which founded or, or created a, a, a famous eye salve that it developed, and it was exported all over the Greco-Roman world. And this was its main source of wealth, this ISAV. All three industries, finance, wool, and the production of ISAV, come into play in this letter to the Laodicean church. So my first point, respect the Christ title. Respect who Christ says he is, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation of God, says this. The Apostle John, the Apostle John is again commanded to write to a church, uh, uh, to the angel, to, and that angelos can mean either angelic, an angel, or messenger, and as we've studied before, here it is referring to messenger, and most likely a representative or an elder of the church. So he's speaking to an elder, most likely, uh, most likely an elder from the church of Laodicea. Jesus here identifies himself using three divine titles, the Amen, the Faithful and True Witness, and the Beginning of Creation. All three descriptions of Christ echo uh, a verse in Isaiah, or two verses, Isaiah 65, 16, and 17. Isaiah 65, 16, and 17. Because he who is blessed in the earth will be blessed by God, by the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth will swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my sight. This passage twice describes God as the God of amen. The Hebrew word amen literally means true and occurs about 130 times in the New Testament. The first title, the Amen, is used only here as a personal name for Christ. Here it means that Jesus himself exudes the qualities of Amen. Jesus is a prime example of truth. So it's one thing to be called a doctor. But if you are the doctor, there's a designation. And Jesus, they don't say Amen. Jesus is the Amen. Uh, Jesus, as I said, is the prime example of truth. It thus becomes a descriptive title for the Lord and pictures Him as the one in whom truth is personified and implies certainty. Amen signifies what is fixed, true, or unchangeable, and it highlights His credibility. The certainty that all He says will be accomplished in the Old Testament, a spoken word would be followed with an amen, but Christ often began his statements with an amen, revealing that what he says is true and will most assuredly take place. John 5.24, for example, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, 
but has passed out of, di- out of death into life. Since the foremost indictment against the Laodicean, Laodicean church is lukewarmness, Christ's attributes of sincerity and truth stand out. They contrast them. Next, the title witness refers to Christ's reliability to divine revelation. This meaning agrees closely with, the, with that assigned in Revelation 1.5 and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness. And it is especially well supported by the observation that a faithful witness can be trusted never to misrepresent his message. His reliability extending not only to his character, but also to the content of his message. Christ is the essence of truth. But not only is a witness, is he a witness, but he is a faithful witness. Faithful, the adjective expressing Christ's entire truthfulness, his entire trustworthiness as a witness. This title given to Christ again stands as a stark contrast to the Laodicean church, which was neither faithful nor true. The picture of Christ is not merely that of his truthfulness, but goes beyond to portray the perfect ideal of a witness in whom all the highest conditions of a witness are met, one whose testimony never falls short of truth. Finally, Christ is referred Christ refers to himself as the beginning of the creation of God. The English translation can be somewhat ambiguous and misleading, and because of that, some false teachers seeking to to deny Christ's deity have attempted to use this verse to prove he is a created being. But there is no ambiguity in the Greek text. Arche, beginning, does not mean that Christ was the first, born, first person God created, but rather that Christ himself is the source or origin of creation. Revelation twenty two thirteen, in describing Jesus states, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Through his power, everything was created. Hebrews 1, 2 states, In these last days has spoken, that's God, to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. These titles affirm that Jesus is divine and his message to the church prepares the way for searching and assessing the severe, severe criticism that follows. They weren't just being rebuked by a man. They were being rebuked by the source of truth. The lukewarm church needs to hear the truth and recognize who Christ is. And that comes to my second point. Recognize, their, they need to recognize their true condition. Verses 15 to 17. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Christ gets straight to the point in stating his knowledge about this church. As in the previous messages, the Lord follows his self-description with, I know, a word depicting intimate knowledge that is complete and infallible. When used of human knowledge, this word designates something known by observation, gain knowledge. 
but in referring to divine knowledge, it points to a comprehension that is absolute. The objects of his knowledge are your deeds or your works. As in earlier messages, I know your deeds uh, to the church in Ephesus uh, in verse 19 of chapter 2. Uh, four times he's, he pinpoints to these churches, I know your deeds or I know your works. In each case, the works are more than the deeds done. They are a reflection of their life and conduct. They are evidence of the inward spiritual condition that the Lord alone sees and knows. It is through these that men prove who they actually are. The Lord's evaluation of this church focuses on its superficiality in regard to spiritual things. You are neither cold nor hot, but lukewarm. I wish that you were cold or hot. These are strong, strong words from the Lord. And commentators take two predominant views regarding this verse. The first is the historic and still predominant view, the view that I take where cold means against me and hot means for me. I wish that you were cold or hot. Jesus is essentially saying, what he's essentially saying here is that I wish that you were other than you are. But instead, you are lukewarm, neither for me nor against me. Excuse me. Sorry. Maybe I should stay with paper. But instead, you are lukewarm, neither for me nor against me. The other interpretation, however, began in the 60s. A lot of things started in the 60s. When a number of writers began to voice their displeasure with the idea Jesus would ever say, that he'd ever say, I wish you were against me. As a result, they looked into a real issue uh, that took place at the, uh, in the city of Laodicea. Laodicea was geographically nearly impregnable, yet it was vulnerable to attack because it had to pipe in its water from several miles away through aqueducts that could easily be blocked or diverted by, by besieging forces. Laodicea was near two other towns, each of which had a unique water source. To the north was Heropolis, which had a natural hot spring, often used for medicinal purposes. To the east was Colossae, which had cold, pure waters. In contrast to these towns, Laodicea had no permanent supply of good water. Efforts to pipe water to the city from nearby springs were successful, but it would arrive lukewarm and unpleasant. This is a true historical fact regarding the city. But from the discovery, many commentators began to assert that Jesus is saying, I wish that you were cold, meaning I wish that you were refreshing, like the water of Colossae, or I wish that you were hot, referring to the therapeutic benefit that came from the water in Heropolis. But such an interpretation, though easier to digest for some, neglects to recognize the reality that repeatedly Jesus calls us to complete submission to him and his cause. Matthew 12.30 declares, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. 
And also that Jesus does not tolerate half-hearted discipleship. Matthew 16, 24, we read, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And in John 6, 53, he reveals that he demands complete loyalty. Jesus has no time for superficial followers. And that verse states, 6.53 of John, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. So when Jesus states that I wish that you were cold or hot, Jesus is stating that it is preferable either to be completely hot for me, otherwise it's better to be consistent with your own heart and be against me. Just Just don't sit on the fence. Just don't play church. Hot is easy to, easier to define. It's derived from the word theo, I boil, which is usually translated fervent. Hot describes a person characterized by a healthy spiritual passion. The picture is of one who has been heated to a boiling point by some outside source and has maintained that state. But to the nonchalant, Regarding Jesus Christ, your creator not only who gave you life and maintains your life and offers salvation, uh, such such an attitude is unacceptable to God. If you are born again, you must be passionate about Jesus Christ. The thought of being hot is natural. The thought of being lukewarm is repulsive to God. The question arises then, why would Jesus ever wish for a person to be cold toward him? Meaning, why would he ever wish someone to, be out, to outwardly reject him? But this verse is not saying that being cold toward Christ is pleasing to him. Rather, he is saying he would rather you be honest about your faith. Lukewarm is a description of church people who have professed Christ hypocritically, but do not have him in their hearts. The reality of what they pretend to be in their actions. Such hypocrisy offers the only possible reason Christ would prefer coldness to lukewarmness. And we can see this played out throughout the Gospels. His denunciation of the religious authorities of his day was because of their hypocrisy. A person who professes to be a Christian but secretly has not believed in Christ but thinks that his profession is enough is extremely dangerous. Nothing can be done for a nominal Christian who cannot recognize that he needs repentance. Matthew 9, 9-13 states, As Jesus went out from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting in the tax collector's booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed, and followed him. Then it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table in the house, Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. disciples. When the Pharisees saw, saw this, they said to his disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard heard this, he said, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that no one is righteous before God. 
apart from being regenerate. Jesus here is saying that he came for those who know they are sinners, those who know they do not meet his standard. He came for the desperate and the needy, not the proud and self-righteous. Blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3. The tax collectors and prostitutes were outwardly vile and opposed God, yet Jesus Christ still showed them mercy. But the religious and outwardly righteous Jesus rebuked more than any other segment of his society. Those who self-righteously think that they are saved and unwilling to recognize their real condition, the problem is they're not cold enough. They're not cold enough to feel the bitter sting of their sin. Consequently, there is no, no one further from the truth than the one who makes an idle profession but never experiences genuine saving faith. What we must glean from this verse is that there is only one option. You cannot be comfortable at all being lukewarm. You must be hot. Obviously, you can't be cold. You're apart from Christ. John MacArthur states, Hot people are those who are spiritually alive and possess the fervency of a transformed life. Does this define you? Is your true passion Jesus Christ? Are you concerned about the things that Jesus is concerned about? Or are you busy devoting your life to secondary matters, even matters within a church? What is it that Jesus is concerned about? Salvation? Sanctification? His body, the church? Transformation? Becoming more and more Christ-like? Building His kingdom? Are you concerned about these things? Are you living a sacrificial life? Does your faith cost you anything at all? Do you give out of your excesses, or is, it, or is your giving costly? I'm not asking you if your life exudes sinless perfection. I'm asking you if you are fervent for Christ. A key verse every... Christians should take sh seriously is 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? A few things stand out to me about this verse. First, that there is an onus on you, an onus on me, to truly examine myself to see where I stand before God. But if you are superficial, if you are lukewarm in your faith, if you are religious, it can be easy just to simply casually give yourself the passing grade. I'm not like that person. As we see in uh, Luke 18, 11 and 12, speaking of this Pharisee, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes and all that I get. This man was not pleasing to God, but in his eyes he was approved. To properly examine yourself calls for time, effort, humility. To properly examine yourself 
means that you actively acknowledge your sin. We all have some. And you do everything in your, pos- in your life possible to deal with it, uh, to mortify it, to use old language, to kill it. Next we read in 3.17, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. The reason this church was lukewarm stems from the congregation's attitude of smug self-sufficiency. A Bible commentator, Jeffrey Wema, explains that how people act is intimately connected in how they think. Thus, Christ identifies the root cause of the problem in the Laodicean church. These believers will never be able to replace their useless works with truly praiseworthy ones unless they first change their misguided misguided and sinful mentality. The arrogance of the Laodicean church stem from their wealth. I am rich and have become wealthy and do not need a thing. The reference to the wealth of the Laodicean church would immediately cause hearers to recall Christ's earlier commendation to the church in Smyrna, whose members were economically poor. They were nearly destitute, but yet spiritually rich. As Revelation 2.9 says, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. Their true situation is that they are not rich toward God, speaking of Laodicea. Spiritually and ethically, they are in, need, in great need, and Christ lays bare their true condition in a crescendo of woeful descriptions. Wretched and miserable. Uh, and for some, uh, some Bibles, instead of miserable, uh, the translation would say pitiable, meaning deserving of pity or needing of grace. And I like that, uh, that word, needing of grace. These people needed grace. They were further described as poor and blind and naked. The last three are figurative, representing their true spiritual bankruptcy, uh, their ignorance and shameful state. In reality, these people are evil and helpless. This is the state of the entire church in Laodicea. Their true situation is that they are destitute before God. If you are caught up in things not essential, doing church but not serving his church, voicing your love for Christ but your deeds say something different. You need to assess reality. Are you hot as described earlier or does lukewarm define you better? These are strong words and they're meant to be taken soberly, not casually. But when his rebuke is taken seriously, his solution is also attainable. We must assess our spiritual condition carefully and then act. And my third point, respond to Christ's command. And that's verses 18 to 20. I advise you to buy gold, to buy from me gold, refined by fire so that you may become rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. The three failings expressed figuratively at the end of verse 17, poor, blind, naked, are taken up here in close, close parallels, and Christ specifies the cure for them. But the most important point of this verse is that the remedy in each case is something beyond their own self-sufficiency. 
It's easy in our world, I think, to be self-sufficient. We can seemingly have it all together. The Western world, the church is full of that. But truly, all sinners have to offer is their wretched, lost condition. In exchange for that, Christ offers his righteousness to those who truly repent. What they must obtain from Christ, it's detailed in three parallels regarding to buy, followed by a clause telling the benefits this will bring. First, in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. This is something you cannot look elsewhere for. You cannot buy this on your own. It picks up the initial image from the first three metaphors, uh, verse 17, regarding poor. Gold refined by fire, that is, the purest gold. Wealth that is truly valuable, not superficial. Wealth, uh, not superficial, such as outward wealth. This will produce true spiritual wealth. The heritage of life forever with God. They needed gold that was free of impurities, representing the priceless riches of true salvation. They needed to be firstly in Christ, and then they needed to be sanctified. The purifying process is best achieved through trials and faithfulness through them. Jesus Christ will take his people through trials. That is how he purifies us. But the church of Laodicea was looking elsewhere and believed that they are able to be in fellowship with God through their own righteousness. Where do you look in order to be right before God? You can say you believe and rely on Him, but does your life match that assertion? These people attended church and lived outwardly moral lives. There's no rebuke about that. But inwardly, they were bankrupt. They were acting the part of devoted Christians, but accomplishing nothing of eternal value. Second, he counsels you to buy from me white garments so that you may be clothed in the shame of your nakedness. The second object uh, relates to naked, being naked, white garments, which bring two complementary benefits that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be exposed. These represent the cleansing and purity that comes with the forgiveness Christ provides by a sacrificial death and the remo removal and humiliation and judgment that sin brings. And thirdly, I counsel you to buy from me salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. This third object corresponds to being blind. They can get relief from spiritual darkness alone from Christ, so they may see. Use of a healing salve for eye problems was widely known and recommended around uh, in the ancient world, but Christ stretches the image here to cover healing even of blindness. The image of blindness in sight speaks of spiritual enlightenment that comes with Christian conversion and instruction. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4, illuminates us in such blindness. In whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. This church, which resided in a place famous for vision, 
is informed that they're actually blind. They need to buy a heavenly eye salve that will give them both discernment and vision. Like all unregenerate people, the Laodiceans desperately needed Christ to open their eyes so that they might see and turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. In verse 19 we read, Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Some would argue that the language of Christ's direct appeal to the Laodiceans in this verse, those whom I love and approve and reprove and discipline, indicates that they were believers. Verse 18, however, seems better suited to indicate that they were unregenerate. Desperately in need of the gold of true spiritual riches, the garments of true righteousness, and the eye salve that brings true spiritual understanding. Christ has a unique love, a special love for his elect. Yet a passage such as Mark 21 reveals that he also loves the unredeemed. In Mark 10, Jesus, in speaking to a self-righteous young ruler, challenges this man's claims of godliness by telling him to give up his earthly riches for eternal riches that only come through Christ. Mark 10:21 states, Looking at him, Jesus felt a love for him and said to him, One thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. In the midst of this man's self-deluded pride and ignorance, Jesus still felt a love for him. In spite of the Laodicean church's poor attitude toward him, he still has tender and affectionate feelings towards this church. A surprising choice of this emotional word, love, used here, phileo, is a love of personal affection. It's shown, shown toward those who deserve it least among the seven churches. It is not saying there's a special relationship of paternity, uh, a fatherly love. Uh, he does not use agapeo, agape love. Here is a case where Christ extends special, special treatment to a church in spite of its lukewarm condition. To reprove means to expose and convict. It is a general term for God's dealing with sinners. Discipline refers to punishment and is used of God's convicting of unbelievers. Thus, the terminology of verse 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, does not demand that Christ be referring to believers. The Lord compassionately, tenderly called those in this unregenerate church to come to saving faith, lest he convict, lest he convict and judge them. Proverbs 3.12 states, For whom the Lord loves, he reproves, even as the Father corrects the Son in whom he delights. Martin Lloyd-Jones states that repentance means you realize that you are guilty. That you are a guilty, vile sinner in the presence of God. That you deserve the wrath and punishment of God. That you are hell-bound. It means that you begin to realize that this thing called sin is in me. It's in you. That you long to get rid of it and you turn your back on it in every shape and form. You renounce the world whatever the cost, the world in its mind and outlook as well as its practice and you deny yourself and take up the cross and go after Christ. The message to this lost church as it is to all the unsaved is to zealously, zealously pursue the repentance that leads to life. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice 
and opens the door, I will come into him, and he will dine with him, and he with me. Here is a picture of closeness, in a sense of greater intimacy than in any of the other letters to the churches. Christ, Christ presents himself as right on the verge of entering, and so provides an incentive for the church to heed the commands, to be zealous and repent. Many see the door as the door of the human heart, either that of an unbeliever, of a believer, or that of any person regardless of spiritual condition. But this verse is talking to the church. God does beckon people to repent and surrender their life to him. But it is, this is not the focus of this verse. The invitation is a personal one, since salvation is individual. But he is knocking on the door of the church, calling the many to saving faith so that he may enter this church. If one person, anyone, opened the door by repentance and faith, Christ, Christ would enter that church through that individual. The picture of Christ outside the Laodicean church seeking entrance strongly implies that unlike Sardis, there are no believers there at all. Jesus beckons this lukewarm church to new life by first revealing who the messenger is. He is the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He is the beginning of creation. He next speaks the truth about their actual spiritual condition. This lukewarm church, this lukewarm church was poor, blind, and naked. Third, Jesus counseled them to buy from him what they could not purchase in their own strength. Gold refined by fire, salvation, white garments representing the cleansing purity that comes through his forgiveness, and eye salve, open eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light. Jesus warns this unregenerate church to be zealous and repent. Finally, they must receive his counsel. Verses 21 and 22. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the father says to the churches. The amazing promise to he who overcomes, that is all believers, is that Christ will grant to him to sit down with him, with Christ, on his father's throne, as he also overcame and sat down with the father on his throne. The term overcomer, can carry an inaccurate connotation uh, that the onus is on us, the believer. You must overcome the numerous obstacles in life uh, so that you will receive your eternal reward, uh, some might think, just by that word overcomer. But that's not what, what is meant here. A few months ago, we studied the doctrine of the preservation of saints in adult Sunday school. The doctrine refers to God's unfailing work to sustain Sustain the faith of those whom he has made alive by the Spirit, the regenerated, and united with Christ. This unfailing work continues all the way from the believer's conversion to his glorification. These are the overcomers spoken of in each of the letters to the seven churches. God sustains his children to overcome. To the Laodiceans, Christ offers them to truly repent and then the promise to enjoy fellowship with Christ in his kingdom throughout eternity. But Christ offers more, promising to seat believers on the throne he shares with the Father, signifying the truth that he will reign with him. 
The right to sit with Christ on his heavenly throne is but one of the many promises made to overcomers in the letters to the seven churches. As we read, overcomers are promised the privilege of eating from the tree of life. That was verse 2-7. The crown of life, verse 2-10. Protection from the second death, all for the overcomer, all for those who are in Christ. The hidden manna, the white stone with a new name written on it. Authority to rule the nations. The morning star, white garments symbolizing purity and holiness. The honor of having Christ confess their names before God and the holy angels in heaven. To be made a pillar in God's temple. To have written on them the name of God of the new Jerusalem and of Christ. As he did in the six other letters, the letter to the Laodiceans closed with Christ's exhortation. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It simply means listen and apply. The message to the apostate church is obvious. Repent and open up to Christ before the night of judgment falls. The implication for true believers is that like Christ, we must compassionately call those in the apostate church or within our church to repent and receive salvation in Jesus Christ. Real love tells the truth. The letter to the Laodicean church reveals that there is really only one type of church that pleases God, and that is to be hot, to burn with a desire to please God. If you are fervent in your faith, passionate about Jesus Christ, this will be revealed not by your words alone, but through your deeds. You will, you will know them by their fruits. Do you bear good fruit? If you are surrendered to Christ, the pattern of your life is to be continually producing good fruit while growing in Christ-likeness. The counsel to you is to hold fast to this manner of life and press on to the end for your heavenly reward awaits. If you are cold towards Christ, the counsel to you is simply to repent. You must cry out for mercy and seek forgiveness for your sinful life and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But if you are lukewarm, the letter to the Laodicea reveals that you are most in danger because you are self-deluded. And you must heed the warning to the church. You cannot earn salvation through your own strength, no matter how successful or good you may regard yourself. Instead, you must also cry out for mercy, just like the person who is cold to the gospel. This is the real danger in the church, being lukewarm. The cold, those who clearly are opposed to Christ and his gospel, won't stay long. Maybe their spouse or parent will drag them for a while, but they're going to leave. But to the lukewarm, uh, they can fit in well. The lukewarm is a religious person. Uh, they can know the church customs. They can love church, but not love Christ. Uh, they may be pouring their life into outer things, but never about Christ. Good things, but not redeemed. The letter to the seven churches reveals that Jesus Christ knows his church, loves his church, and offers both forgiveness and strength. This letter, or these letters are relevant to us at Fellowship Baptist. He calls us to absolute obedience, doctrinal purity, and a devoted love to himself. He calls you to remain separate from the sinful culture that surrounds. He calls you to fight for purity. 
for purity within, to love, to faith, service, and perseverance. He calls you to a fervent life in Christ. He calls you to faithfulness and to gospel proclamation. Jesus Christ calls you to himself. And in that, he, his promise, and in that he promises you himself. Revelation 22:16 states, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify you, to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Jesus Christ is the brightest of all stars. And he promises to stand for his church and assures you that as you are faithful to that end, you will overcome in this life and reap eternal rewards in the next. And there is no higher calling. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your church. We know that no church is perfect because it is housed with people like us. Sinners saved by grace. And as your word says, it is also housed by those that are still stuck in their sin. And Lord, I pray that we as a church are on task, that our mission is the gospel. Our mission is to bring glory to your name. That our mission is to reach the lost. That we are a church that speaks the truth. And we speak it in love. That we uh, desire wholly to honor you. Lord, uh, help us, Lord, as uh, we, we've just heard of this church in Laodicea, as we've, as we've read your scripture, uh, that you will not tolerate lukewarm. And you shouldn't. You are God. You are perfect and holy. You gave everything for a lost people. And the very idea of being lukewarm, of being superficial regarding your name sickens you. Lord, we want to be pleasing to you, Lord. Help us, Lord, to take seriously, Lord, your word that we would examine ourselves truly to see that we are in the faith and that we would grow, Lord, Grow in our love for you, our love for our brothers and sisters, and our desire to reach our city and our nation. I pray this in your holy name, Jesus. Amen.